If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Exodus 24. Exodus 24. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there's one located in the back of the pew in front of you, and you're welcome to use that during the service and then take that and keep it for yourself as our gift uh, to you so that you have a copy of God's Word. While you're turning there, I'm going to ask a question. It's probably going to bruise my ego, but I'm going to go ahead and put it out there anyway. Do any of you happen to remember the sermon that I preached back in November from these texts in the book of Exodus? I see a hand back there. That's more than I was expecting. All right. How many of you remember what I preached on last week? Oh, that's real. Oh, man. (laughs) That's about what I expected. Okay. Anyway. Well, since you don't remember, I could tell you anything that I said in the past, and you don't remember it anyway, but I'm not going to do that. But I did tell you then that I was going to introduce those texts and then preach back through them in January. Well, guess what? It's January. So we're coming back to these texts. It's not the same message, uh, but the same text that we'll be looking at this week and next week as we move into our And More campaign, but also see some very important truths for our lives, not just related to this campaign. But just a word of warning for you this morning. There will be a test at the end of this one. All right? Honest, really promised. There's going to be a test here. Well, let me tell you what's going on bringing us up to Exodus 24. In Exodus 19 through 23, those chapters, Moses goes to Mount Sinai and God gives him a list of laws that the people were to follow, starting with the Ten Commandments. So Moses comes back to the people and said, hey, here's what God expects of us. Here's what God wants us to do. Are you willing to do these things to be obedient to God, that God will bless us? He will be our God. We will be his people. And the people say, oh, yes, we we are on board. We will do all that you've told us. So look at uh, Exodus 24, starting in verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Basically, as they looked up, they, they first saw this cloud, and then they saw it was like fire. It was just like this constant fire burning on top of the mountain. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Was Moses a man's man or what? I mean, you know he walked around camp with a little bit of swagger. It was like, yeah, that's right. I walked into the cloud of fire and lived to tell about it. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Moses had it going on. The Bible tells us that because he was in God's presence and he spoke to God as man speaks to man face to face, that Moses' face, his skin actually glowed. It had a glow about it. And it wigged the people out so much that they said, Moses, will you put a veil on to cover your face? Because it's just kind of eerie looking at you and your face, you know, is all bright and stuff. And so Moses wore this veil to hide his skin shining. Moses was way cooler than Edward Cullen. You know, I mean, his face shines when the, when the sunlight sparkles on it. Moses shone all the time. I mean, just think about how cool would it be to... Ne- Some of you are going, Edward Cullen, Twilight, all right, that whole thing there. You go, oh, okay, I haven't seen the movies. I don't know what you're talking about. Moses' face didn't just glow when the sun hit it. Like, his glowed at night. How cool would it be to never need a flashlight? You know, just walk around and go, hmm, what am I looking for? You know, I don't know if his face glowed that bright or not, but it really did glow. You can look for yourself in Exodus 34. So here's Moses. He's been in God's presence, 
and he's getting the laws and the Ten Commandments on the tablets that he's going to bring back down to the people, and they are going to begin serving God. And he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Well, you know why it took so long? Because he was getting those Ten Commandments, and he, and he was chiseling them on stone, and God said, you shall have no other gods before me. And Moses goes, mm-hmm. And he goes, okay, what is after you? You what? Shall. So 40 days, 40 nights, Moses is up there getting law, getting the commandments, and he comes back down to the people, and he finds them worshiping a golden calf. And he gets so angry that they have already slipped away from serving God that he breaks the two copies of the Ten Commandments on the tablets and has to go back up the mountain and get another set. But fortunately, it didn't take as long the second time, and you know why? Because God saves There you go. Kim, come on. <laughs> come on. I was, I was going to get Kim back there. Come on. I mean, there you go. There. God saves. Okay, stand-up routine's over. Exodus 25, verse 2. God speaks to Moses. This is part of God's instruction to the people. He says, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. So God is giving Moses instruction that he is to build a tabernacle, a a temple, a place of worship that the people will come to bring offerings, sacrifices. They will meet with God. God will speak with them, give them guidance and direction. And God tells Moses what to build, what to put into this, all that's going to entail. And he says to prepare for this, in order to pay for this, Take a contribution for me from the people. And so Moses comes and he gives this instruction back to the people on receiving an offering for the sanctuary, for the tabernacle. And did you see the motivator? What was to motivate people? God said, from every man whose heart moves him. That's the motivation. If your heart moves you, then you give And God was going to receive that offering in order to build the sanctuary or the tabernacle. Now, I want you to understand an important distinction here between an offering and a tithe. You see, tithes were part of the agreement with God that the people were to maintain as part of their covenant. You remember this covenant where God said, will you follow my laws and do what I've told you to do? And the people said, yes, we will do that. Giving the tithe was part of their agreement. And a tithe was 10%. It means a tenth. That's what that word means, is 10% or a tenth. And so the people were to bring 10% of their money, 10% of their grain, 10% of their fruit, 10% of their vegetables, of the, of the meat that they raised. They were to bring 10% of this and bring to the Levites and priests who served at the tabernacle uh, at the sanctuary. And they would take a portion of this and they would sacrifice it. They would burn it and they would give it back to God as an offering to him. But the remaining portion the Levites and the priests would keep to live off of because they worked in the temple and they kept it running for the other people to be able to come and worship God there. So God wasn't saying to them, if your heart moves you to tithe, then do it. It's not saying if your heart moves you to tithe, then do it, because it was a given that people were going to be tithing because it was an act of obedience on their part to their covenant relationship with God and their agreement with him. 
But in addition to this tithe that was expected and commanded of people, there were offerings that God received at different points. Some of these were seasonal. Some of these were holiday-type offerings. But some of them were simply, if God has blessed you and your heart is full and you feel moved or you feel led to come and give God an additional offering, then feel free to do so. So it was an offering that was above and beyond the tithe that they were giving. And this sanctuary offering that Moses was commanding the people to give was one of these give from your heart, a voluntary type offering. And I want to drill down on two things this morning from this text. First, the Bible clearly teaches that the tithe or 10% giving is the minimum baseline standard for God's people when it comes to giving. That is a clear truth and teaching from Scripture. I want you to track with me on this. Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law. Now, the law is what Moses is giving here, the commandments that people are to do out of obedience in their covenant relationship. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish, that is, get rid of it, cast it away, so you don't have to follow it anymore, but to fulfill the law, to bring it to completion. So if the law wasn't abolished and you're not told don't do it, but it's fulfilled, then Jesus is simply fulfilling it and telling us that there's a new form or a new expectation for giving. It's part of the new covenant. Because Jesus told his disciples that when they drank the cup as part of the Lord's Supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. There's a new covenant. There's a new relationship, a new way of relating to God through Jesus Christ. And so this covenant, this agreement, we're going to begin talking a lot about this, you'll hear uh, in, in upcoming months. This covenant, this agreement is where both parties commit to something. We have a covenant with God. God has promised certain things and we commit to certain things on our part of our relationship, our covenant agreement with God. So we say, well, well this covenant, well, what all's entailed in it? Well, what does that mean for us? Well, there's a whole lot to it, but the most basic form we can find is in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. So in that, we see two things that are part of our commitment to this new covenant. The first is being baptized. Jesus says we're to go and make disciples and to be baptized. And following Jesus' example, that's by immersion. The Bible says that Jesus came up out of the water, meaning he had been down in the water. But in addition to that, the reason we practice baptism by immersion is because it symbolizes dying to our old self, dying to the old covenant in the law, and being resurrected to new life in Jesus Christ in the new covenant through him. And the water symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us and forgives us of our sins. So one, one commitment on our part to the new covenant is that of being baptized according to Jesus' example. But the second part of it, Jesus said that we are, his disciples were to teach them. And not just teach them, but teach them to what? To observe, he said. That is to obey, to do everything that Jesus has commanded. So obedience to Jesus' teaching and his commands is part of our commitment to the new covenant in our relationship and our walk with Jesus Christ. So that's our part of the, the covenant, the commitment. What, part, what was Jesus' part on this? Well, the end of this verse, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end 
of the age. So Jesus promised to us, God's commitment to us is, I will be with you. And if he will be with us, he will take care of us. He will watch over us. He will guide us. He will protect us. He will be all that we need. And Jesus told his disciples that the Holy Spirit would live within us. Now, there's, again, there's much more to that, but those are the basics of the new covenant in Christ. So we're to obey all that Jesus commanded. Well, then the question begins to flow then, what did Jesus say? What was his command about giving? Did Jesus say anything about giving? He did. Jesus said a whole lot about giving. I said this before, not that you remember it, but Jesus said more about money and material possessions than he did about heaven and hell combined. That's an important note to think that Jesus spoke more about this topic than he did about heaven and hell combined. Why is that? I think because he knew the dangers and the temptations for this to lead his people away from God. I want to read to you just two things. Uh, There's much more, but just two things that Jesus said related to giving. In Matthew chapter 6, that chapter starts and ends with Jesus speaking about giving. He bookends this entire chapter. You can read that chapter later, but in the middle part of that chapter, verse 24, Jesus gives a warning. He says this, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says this, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. These are Jesus' words. Now, that's a pretty serious warning that he gives. But we don't have to worry because Jesus illustrates in verses 25 through 32 what God will do in the life of his people as they seek to follow after him and be obedient in trusting him and having right priorities. And in verse 23 of Matthew, I'm sorry, verse 33 of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives a prescription. He tells us what to do to have right priorities and to see God's provision in our lives. He says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. Jesus very clearly in the new covenant established that our top priority is to always be seeking God and his righteousness. And he will take care of the rest. So what else did Jesus have to say about giving? In Luke chapter 12, he tells a parable to illustrate the importance of us managing what God has given us and doing that well. And he contrasts a good manager or a good steward and a bad manager and a bad steward. And he talks about the difference that these two experience when their owner comes back to see how they manage what have been entrusted to them. And as he explains that parable to his disciples, he ends in verse 48 by saying this, Everyone to whom much was given... Of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand more. To whom much is given, much is required. And to whom they've entrusted much, they will demand more. Now, I know I have said this on several occasions, but it bears repeating. Jesus did not lower the bar 
in the new covenant in any way or in any area of our lives. In fact, Jesus raised the bar in every area and in every way of our relationship and our walk with him. A couple of examples of how Jesus did this. Jesus said, in the law it is written, do not murder Jesus says, but I tell you, this is part of the new covenant. Jesus said, the law says, do not murder. But I tell you, if you are angry with your brother and you call him a fool, you have committed murder against him in your heart. It's the same sin. You didn't murder him. He's still living. But the sin in your heart is the same as if you had murdered him. That's not lowering the bar, friends. That's raising the bar. It's not about the physical act of murder. It's about the attitude of our heart toward our brother. Jesus said, the law says, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman and lust after her in your heart, you have already committed adultery with her in your heart. You are guilty of sin because of what took place in your heart. That is raising the bar, not lowering the bar. So if the tithe was the command in the Old Testament, doesn't it follow that Jesus would expect his followers to give at least that amount and then more because of all that we have received, all that we have been given as part of and participants in the new covenant? I mean, do do you see that logic? Are you tracking with me on that? It's always funny preaching about giving. (laughs) It's a very, very different perspective. But do do you get... What I'm saying here, are you following the logic? I was just following the logic of seeing this. Jesus didn't lower the bar. He always raised the bar in every area. And it should be applied to this area just as it is in every other area of our lives. Well, I want to speak into another important truth in Exodus 25 too that we can be tempted to miss here. The special offering was to come, as I mentioned earlier, from every man whose heart moves him. It was an offering to be given from the heart. And so people might read into this and say, okay, the tithe was commanded, so you gave that whether you felt like it or not. Then if you felt like you wanted to give an offering, you would go ahead and give that. So it's about, you know, one you do out of duty and responsibility, the other you do because you, you, you feel like it, you, you want to be able to do that. But the danger in that is it can kind of begin to cause us to think that maybe the law and following after God was just a matter of duty and responsibility. And then when Jesus came, we kind of do what we feel led to do or we want to do. And there's more of a a free will involvement in that because of the grace and the mercy that we've received in Christ. So we can sort of get into a little bit of a works under the law. And then, you know, there's much more freedom and you're not bound to those things. Jesus speaks of freedom and and being set free in him. So we kind of look at the contrast and say, well, we're on the freedom side over here. So it's much more open to do just whatever you want to do. The condition, the attitude of your heart doesn't matter. Uh, It's just whatever you feel led to do in your heart and spirit. That's fine and that's acceptable. Well, I want to go back and show you that the law was never about duty and responsibility and doing it regardless of what you felt like, okay? God has always been concerned with the fact that people who are in relationship with him, who serve him, do what they do for him in obedience and surrender with a right heart and with sincere motives. You see, the attitude and the condition and the desire and the intent of our hearts in everything we do determines the depth of intimacy and the fulfillment we experience in our relationship with God. 
Let me say that again. You need to grasp the importance of this truth in your life, not just in giving, but in everything. The attitude, the condition, the desire, and the intent of our hearts in everything we do determines the depth of intimacy and the fulfillment we experience in our relationship with God. Not only that, but the condition of our heart determines whether or not God accepts our worship. Listen to me. The condition of our heart determines whether or not God accepts our worship, hears our prayers, receives our praise to him, and whether or not God pours out a blessing back to us in any way, shape, or form, or whether or not God will hear and answer our prayers. The condition of our heart is incredibly important when it comes to our relationship with God. It can be a hindrance or it can be an open door and it can pave the way for us to have a full and abundant life that Jesus promised in John chapter 10. I want you to see what I'm talking about in Isaiah chapter 1. Turn over there. You need to see this passage of scripture. I think it will highlight and you'll grasp what I'm talking about here. Isaiah chapter 1. illustrates how incredibly important it is that we have a right heart in our worship and our acts of service to God. In Isaiah 1, verse 11, God speaking to the people through Isaiah says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Now remember, sacrifices are part of the law. This is what people were commanded to do. He says in the next part of this verse, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now these people were bringing their tithes and their sacrifices like they were commanded, but they were also going above and beyond and bringing some of these free will offerings. And they were good free will offerings. God said that they were well-fed beasts. Do you know what that indicates? It indicates that the people were living in a time of prosperity and peace. They were blessed. There was abundance of land for them to feed their animals, and their animals were growing fat and healthy, and they were bringing these things, and they were giving these things back to God. But God said he doesn't delight in them. Now, why? Why would that be the case? They're doing what they're supposed to be doing and going above and beyond in their giving and bringing these things. And God says, I I don't delight in it. I take no joy in that. Well, look at verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? They would gather for worship. Much like we have gathered for worship today. We think, oh, God is pleased. God is thrilled that we're here to worship today. God called their gathering together a trampling of his courts as they gathered for worship. Now, that, that, that's amazing that he would say that. Look at verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity, which is a word for sin, and solemn assemblies. Solemn assemblies were special prayer and spiritual gatherings for the people. And God says, I can't endure it. 
I'm tired of the, these gatherings where you get together and, and there's all this sin as you gather together to say that you're praying. And God tells them to stop bringing offerings and to stop burning incense. Those were acts of worship. Those are things that they were supposed to do as part of worship. And God says, stop, just stop. I don't want it. And you read this and you go, what is going on? Why in the world would God be saying these things? Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. New moons, and these are celebratory times. God says, my soul hates these things that you all are doing. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And that is scary stuff heavy stuff that God is speaking to the people. Look at verse 15. It gets even scarier. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. What is going on? Why would God make such stern uh, pronouncements toward his people why would he be so antagonistic toward them well verse 15 tells us why the the end part of verse 15 your hands are full of blood that's a way of saying sin you have sinned against me wash yourselves he says in verse 16 make yourselves clean remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes cease to do evil learn to do good seek justice correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless plead the widow's cause so god highlights the things that they were not doing the sins that they were committing and says Take care of these things. Change these things. And God, God shows how far he wants to go that their hearts would be right. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So God tells the people that he wants them to have a right heart and he wants to forgive their sins and for their hearts to be cleansed and pure so they can come to him and they can worship. But here's the thing, their hearts weren't right. And so their acts of worship weren't accepted by God. And he didn't hear and he didn't accept and he didn't answer those prayers because they had unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their lives. It was a heart issue. And their heart issue hindered their worship and their acts of service to God. Doing the law outwardly, but not from a right heart inwardly, was denounced by Jesus. In Matthew 15, he spoke to the Pharisees and said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, Jesus said, do they worship me. Well, let me tie all this together for us this morning. The topic is obviously on our giving. God told Moses to receive an offering from every man whose heart moved him in order to build the sanctuary. It was an offering above and beyond the tithe that they were already giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 is the longest single passage in the Bible about giving. And if you're around here long enough, you'll hear me preach through uh, this, those chapters at some point. But I want to give you just one truth today from those those two chapters that, that really tie together what we've looked at so far. In 2 Corinthians 9, 7, Paul says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, 
Remember, it's the attitude, the intent of our heart. But look at how Paul ends this thought. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. You know, we get the word hilarious from the Greek word that Paul uses for the word cheerful right there. Isn't that ironic? Because preaching on giving usually doesn't elicit a hilarious response from people. I can just tell you from years and years of experience. But just think about all the words that Paul could have used to describe, that God could have laid on Paul's heart, that he could have used to describe our attitude toward cheering. God loves a faithful giver. God loves a obedient. God loves a consistent. God loves a, just at least a compliant giver. But no, God didn't lead Paul to use any of those words. He used a word that describes an attitude, an emotion, a condition of the heart, the word cheerful. And next week, I'll get into some more logistics and details related to giving at Mount Pleasant. But, but today, I wanted to focus on one thing. That's the condition and the attitude of our hearts as it relates to giving. And I wanted to boldly and unapologetically challenge you to examine your heart and your habits related to giving for you and your family. And if you find that you're not where God would have you to be, to challenge you to take that step of faith, that step of obedience, as you grow in your relationship with Christ and seek to be a more fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. If you have not surrendered your heart so completely that you regularly and consistently give to God a portion of your income through regular tithing, then you need to know today that you will be held accountable for your obedience or lack thereof in this area of your walk with God. And after today, you cannot claim, you cannot say, well, God, I didn't know because I have declared to you the full counsel of God's word and his clear truths and principles in this area as simply as I know how. So from this point forward, it's not an issue of knowledge, of knowing. It's an issue of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you and your family to commit with a right heart to be faithful in your giving of your tithes and your offerings for the glory of God and the sake of the gospel. This is an issue of faith, not of finances. You need to understand that this is about faith, not about finances. And if you say, well, we're at a point, there's no way we could even think about, you know, giving 10, 10% or a tenth, that find a point, pick a point, 3%, 6% to commit to regularly and consistently with a commitment in your heart that as you see God prove his faithfulness, that God does provide for you, that you will grow and you will increase and you will mature in this area of your walk and your relationship with Christ. We are beginning a capital campaign to replace the roof on our sanctuary. And I'm setting the challenge before you, church, that Moses set before God's people. As God moves in your heart to give above and beyond the tithe, then do so. 
that that's the challenge for you in, as we come to our capital campaign. As God moves in your heart to give above and beyond the tithe, then do so. There's a bulletin insert, which kind of gives you an overview of our process, what we've gone through to bring us to this point in our and more campaign. Right now, we're kind of waiting to get some paperwork back and some information so we can continue this process. As we get details, those will be made available to you. And we're going to have some meetings and some forums and a final vote when we get a final price on all of this. But right now, it's in motion, but we're waiting on some other pieces of information. But we didn't want to wait until we get started on this project to begin raising funds. We have a ballpark estimate of about $200,000. Hopefully it's going to come in under that price, but we know that's the, the goal that we're shooting for. And by God's grace and mercy, we've already received a good portion of the money toward that. We've got a graphic that we're going to use to highlight and and help you uh, see where we are in this process. And we're going to show that to you now to tell you that we've already received over $43,000 toward our goal. So you're going to see this coming in. There you go, $43,289.37. So we're on our way. We are knocking this thing out already. We haven't even formally started. Can you get that? We haven't even formally started. Next week is our kickoff offering. Next week, we start this whole thing formally. There, there's a special green offering envelope in your bulletin. Those are in back of the pew. It says, and more on it for the roof replacement project. And we're going to receive a separate offering next week to try and kick this can a little further down the road toward our goal. And so we've been asking you and your family to pray about how you can give sacrificially and generously to this first offering, but then also incrementally in smaller amounts as often as you can until we reach our goal. And man, I'm hoping and praying we'll get this thing paid off before they ever come and rip the first shingle off this roof. But if not, then let's get it paid off as quickly as we can when that project is finished. But let me give you a couple pieces of information that are very important for you to hear today. It's common in churches during capital campaigns to see a decrease in people's regular giving because people will take the money that they're giving and they'll just reallocate a portion toward a special project. Church, I'm going to ask that you please don't do that. We have a ministry action plan, that's our our term for a budget, that we follow each year, and we build that based on our giving and our tithe levels. And so if you begin reallocating those dollars, you're going to negatively impact our ministry plan, our ministry initiatives that we have set in motion for this year. So here's the thing. If you absolutely positively cannot squeak another penny out of your budget toward the and more campaign, then you just pray. And you pray diligently that God will help us meet that goal and pay this thing off as quickly as possible. But you continue your regular, consistent giving to the regular budget. This isn't about $200,000. It's about increasing our faith in God as we watch him provide all the resources we need and more. In the next few months, as we trust him to provide... And you may be sitting there thinking, this is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life. This sounds so ineffective that he's going to ask people to give their regular amount and then give over and above an additional amount. Does he know the economy we're living in? Does he know the times that we have and the struggles that people are facing? It's a recipe for disaster. It's taken straight from the pages of Scripture. It's following God's principles and God's truths. And we'll see this next week. It's why I've called this the and more campaign. The nation of Israel followed this plan. They followed God's plan and God provided all they needed and more. 
God supernaturally blesses the offerings his children give from a right heart. He does. God supernaturally blesses the offerings his children give from right heart. That's part of our tithes, but that's also offerings to a project such as this. Now, I will show you next week the power of the tithe in such a way that if we were faithful and obedient as God's people in doing this, we would never, ever, never have to receive another special offering for a capital campaign, for a mission project, or any other kind of initiative. You may say, what? Come back and see next week that if we were faithful and obedient, we would never have need for these special offerings, for these special initiatives that we sometimes move into. I told you there was going to be a test. So here is your test. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. It's the last book of the Old Testament. If you get to Matthew in the New Testament, you've gone too far. Malachi chapter 3. This is another one of those passages that we will one day cover in greater detail, but, to, but I think you'll see just a, a quick reading through this morning the point of this. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. What God's saying there is, I don't change. I'm a God of love and mercy and patience and great compassion. And it's because of that that I haven't killed you yet. I mean, that's what God is saying. Because I do not change my love and my grace and my mercy and my patience with you. You are not consumed. I haven't smited you yet. I love that Old Testament. God's going to smite somebody. God says, I haven't smited you. I haven't smitten you yet because of my love and my patience and my long-suffering with you. Verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, God illustrates and says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? God's response, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. That's a pretty strong language, again, that God is speaking to his people for their disobedience to him. He said them not giving their tithes and their contributions was the same as robbing or stealing from God. And notice that God here doesn't try to motivate them with threats or punishment or disciplines or anything like that. Instead, he tries to motivate his people with a promise. And this is the promise that I want you to see. This is the test that I want to challenge you with. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. God's promise was, I will provide for you. And he invites his people to test him in this. And so I want to challenge you today to take the tithe test. Take the tithe test. Commit to the next 90 days to say, you know what? I'm going to put God to the test. This is the only place in the entire Bible that God tells us to test him in any way, shape, or form. The only area God says you can test me is in our faithfulness in giving to see if God indeed will provide. 
And you know what my experience and my journey in life has been? God does provide every single time, in every instance, in every situation. So take the tithe test for 90 days. Commit to 90 days. And at the end of that time, see if God has not provided for you in a wonderful, powerful, and abundant way. And remember, this isn't about numbers and finances. It's about faith in God and whether or not he can and will provide as he's promised. Now, understand that God's blessing and provision doesn't necessarily mean a financial increase. Some heretics out there will teach you that if you give $100 to the church, you will expect a $500 or $1,000 return. Uh, That's God's blessing being poured out upon you. That's hogwash, all right? It's nonsense. If that were the case, all of God's people would be tithing, all right? Because, I mean, can you imagine that return on investment, okay? It doesn't work that way. That's not necessarily the, the provision and the blessing that God pours out. And God, as you give, God will meet your needs. But here's what you may discover in this as you're walking with God and you draw closer to him and you're faithfully giving. God changes your needs. You'll realize that you don't need all the stuff that you thought you once needed. But in that, you will be enriched. You will be blessed because God will draw near to you because of your faithfulness and your obedience to him. And you know what you'll find? This is what you'll find. Less stuff and more God is always better. Less stuff and more God is always better.